Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you, people, a few weeks ago, I had interviewed John Cafferty uh, from the Beaver Brown Band, and, and it took me back to the times with Eddie and the Cruisers. And then me growing up in New Jersey, that movie always meant a lot to me. And I had Joey Pants on a few years back, and he talked about it. And I was saying, who else you know, can I get? And I know I follow this gentleman on Twitter, so I hit him up, and he played Salamato, and he was in a show duet, which I, I actually watched, I really liked, I think a lot of people liked it, and he was in St. Elmo's Fire and a bunch of other stuff, and he's a radio, he's does sports radio now in Lexington, and my guest is Matthew Lawrence. How you doing, Matt? Hi, Steve. <laughs> uh, so before we start here, okay, now I know this is your deal, but I have a question for you. Okay, I'm going to flip the switch a minute here. How in the wide, wide world of sports have you been able to do, what is it, 940 of these? Are you kidding me? Okay, I'll tell you. I'll give you, I'll give, I'll give you the cliff notes. Okay. <laughs> I started doing it as an internet radio show when I lived in Burbank 12 years ago. Started with local okay. comics. My background's in comedy. Started with L.A. comics. Started getting actors. Probably one guys you know, like Ray Abruzzo and Peter Onorati yep. and all those guys oh, yeah. you know. So I started getting all these actors, and I just kept doing it. I would do two a week. And then the studio closed. I was doing it out of my place in L.A. Me and my wife moved back to New Jersey. And I've just been doing it, and it's I love doing it. And so I've been lucky. I get humbled that I can like reach out to someone like you who is, you know, playing bass on the stage of Tony Martz in, in Eddie and the Cruisers, <laughs> and I can get you on my show. <laughs> oh, Lord. I just, uh, it's unbelievable. And I, you know, I looked uh, through the list. I couldn't, 940, you know, I wasn't going to spend all night looking. But so many friends of mine have done this with you. And uh, I'm humbled and honored to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here because, you know, I, it's so funny and I just, I know you have a twin brother and I was just thinking it was so funny because I always do my research, you know, and I found an old interview with you. It was uh, on TV and it was this yeah. lady, I don't know what it was, you came out, you were juggling apples and, <laughs> and the lady said to you, oh, and you're also in not necessarily the news. And you said, no, that's my brother. And in my head, I'm going, doesn't this lady, like, know to look that up? Like, I've talked to people. I, Josh Pace was on my show, and someone pronounced his name wrong. And I'm like, don't you do your research? I mean, yeah. you're, you're in radio. You, you know, you have, to, you have to do the research or you come across. First of all, your guest is pissed at you. You know, and you, you, right. they, they think, oh, I'm talking to some idiot. But I couldn't believe I saw that on a TV show when they have fact checkers and all that, and she basically called you the wrong brother. Yeah. Oh, well, as you can imagine, it's my identical twin brother, Mitchie, I call him, Mitch Lawrence. And, you know, the, it's a long story about both of us going into acting, but this has happened to us our entire lives. Uh, and... We're at, he's the best friend in the world and has been for me for a long time. But when we first started, when he, I was, I started acting first. And when he decided to do it, we went through a period of about five years where we didn't speak because we were competing for jobs with somebody that looked exactly like you. It was horrible. Uh, and we finally got to a place where 
we decided that was ridiculous. And then we started working together, which was great. But this has happened to us our whole lives. I mean, and it's no excuse for that woman. And I remember, I can't remember exactly what show it was on that I was being interviewed, but I remember thinking the same thing that you just said. Well, I got to ask you something about, since you and your brother are both actors, and this just came across me. Was there ever an audition you both went on and one of you got a call back and the other didn't? And and it'd be like, well, did, did you ever find out why? Was it because the way you read the part? I mean, were your characteristics the same when you came to acting or were you were you independent that way? Well, clearly, I'm a much better actor than my brother. I mean, clearly. And that's always been the case. He's my older brother, by the way, four minutes older. So I've taken crap from him my whole life about that. Um, Actually, uh, we were very afraid of that. And we obviously had different agents. We were both in L.A. I was in New York when, when he started. He was in L.A. And then I moved out to L.A., uh, in 19, God, I'm old, 1981. And it didn't happen. Our agents all, if it was going to happen, they scheduled the appointments at different times. And so it, I, it, I was always amazed it didn't happen more than it did. The one time we ran into each other turned out to be for a show that Mitchie got and I didn't. And it turned out to be a huge deal for him. And that was not necessarily the news on HBO, which lasted six years. And there we were out in the hallway outside the casting office, both of us. And he went in first and I went in a couple of actors later and uh, he got that part. And it, it, it was very disturbing that we were both there. Um, so, but it was great for him. I mean, it launched his career and he was fantastic with it. Don't tell him I said that, by the way. <laughs> well, but, now, now what, what made you get into acting? Cause it's funny. Cause you know, you're, you're in sports radio now. And I think a lot of us when we're younger, I loved sports. I loved baseball. I was a big Philadelphia Phillies fan. I knew every stat, every number, but I also loved acting. I loved music. And as I got older, I went through my phases where I'm like, yeah, I want to hear music instead of sports. And that now mm-hmm. you've gone to a phase where you're in sports radio. But as a kid, were you into sports or were you into acting? Or, or when did you get the acting bug? I was actually into both. My, we grew up uh, mostly on Long Island. And my parents were huge Brooklyn Dodger fans. Uh, we were, The first memory I have of life is being at Ebbets Field with my dad. That's how old I am. And... Uh, always 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 into sports i started acting the first play i ever did was in eighth grade uh and i did musicals to start out with the first thing i ever did was bye bye birdie in eighth grade and i think i'm i've thought about this a lot steve i think actually it was because i was an identical twin and we both played sports at that point and I think I wanted something that I could just call my own. And my brother wasn't doing it. And I just loved, I think I, I developed this kind of outgoing personality to differentiate myself from my brother. I mean, it's pretty heavy psychological stuff going on here. But I really think that's why acting 
appealed to me in the way that it did. And I did plays all through uh, high school, musicals. Uh, we both went to the same college, and I did theater there. Um, and we got to my senior year. We, I was going to be go to law school, and my brother was going to go to medical school because our my father was very poor growing up, and he never wanted to worry about us, so we were going to take the, that route. And I was sitting, taking my law boards my senior year in college, and I put my pencil down, and I went, I don't want to do this. What am I doing? And uh, went home, told my dad that I wasn't going to go to law school and that I wanted to be an actor, and it was the only thing I loved doing. Uh, my brother and I played four sports, and but I knew I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. And I ended up going to, when I graduated college, I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse in New York, which was the best acting school there was. And that started my journey of working as a waiter for six years and driving a cab in New York City for a year and working with a chimpanzee for three months. You, I bet you remember, do you remember Zippy the Chimp? Do you know who Zippy yeah, the Chimp is? Yeah, it sounds familiar. Yeah, it sounds familiar. He, he was on Ed Sullivan a million times. Okay. Well, the the guy that owned him, I, I worked, I did an act with Zippy the Chimp for three months. That's, yeah. I, you'll hear, there's a lot of my life that not very many people have done things that I've done. It's, <laughs> but that's how, that's how I got started. But the sports part has always been a huge part of my life. Always. No. How do you go from Zippy to Chimp to, I know you, you, one of your first big gigs was SNL. Yeah. How how um, did that happen? Because did they say, hey, we need someone to work with Zippy and Zippy gave you a good resume? (laughs) You know, that's pretty funny though. I should have, I don't, I don't really think I had that on my resume and I probably should have because (laughs) we, I was with this, this girl at the time we were living together and we got hired as the couple. We did birthday parties. We opened shopping centers. And she was the, you know, the assistant, the beautiful assistant, and I was in a tuxedo, and it was show business. I should have put that on my resume. I never thought of that. Um, I did, I got very lucky with Saturday Night Live. My brother, Mitchell, was the, uh, an associate producer on the original Saturday Night Live. He went from being uh, a gopher to uh, an associate director of that show he did all of the best of video work uh, for five years with the original cast and he originally got that job a very very close friend of ours named Alan's Rybell who was one of the head writers for SNL wrote all of Gilda Radner's stuff and is still to this day doing incredible things uh, and when that five-year run was, and I, so I was up at the office all the time seeing Mitchell and Al. And when that cast was leaving, I talked to Alan, uh, who was also going to leave the show, but he got me an audition for the new cast. And that's how I got in there. And I was lucky enough to, to, I was a featured player, but I did a lot of things I was for that whole year in 1981 and uh it was pretty remarkable 
it was an incredible experience. So what happened? Did they sit there and they just turn to new talent? I mean, because, you know, you see it now. People seem to leave. And I'm at the point where I, I remember the original SNLs. In fact, I was watching the uh, the Christmas and the bag of glass, and I was just cracking yeah. up. And just that stuff reminds yeah. me. But what happened with you and SNL? Because did you just, did your contract run out? Or did you decide to leave? Or what happened? Well, no, it was more an NBC thing. I mean, that year... After the first year of the new cast, uh, Eddie's first year, Eddie Murphy's first year, uh, Joe Piscopo was on that show. Charlie Rocket was on that show. Wonderful women were on that show. Also, uh, Denny Dillon and Gail Mathias and Ann Risley. And it was a great group of people, but the show was not very good. And people hated us because we replaced, you know, the best cast ever on Saturday Night Live, the original people. Um, so it was a very difficult year. Uh, but for me as an actor, I was, I'm trying to think, I th the, the women were actresses. I was, I think, the only actor on the show, although Charlie Rocket did some great stuff later on. But they were all comedians, most of them. So I got all the straight guy parts, kind of like when Bill Murray joined the show. They always gave him he was the FBI agent or the, you know, um, and it was it was a blast for me just doing it because um, who gets to do that? Not very many people. Um, and then it was over after that year. I, I think Lauren came back after that. You know, Gene Domanian was the producer the year I was on. She was gone. Uh Dick Ebersol took over again, and they got new cast members, and, you know, so it was just that one year, but it was fantastic. So when you're done, where's your head at? Because, you know, you're going from this TV show, you're a young actor, you know, it's like anything, it's not your fault, but as I always say, people who are performers, my background's in stand-up and I've acted, we're, we're a mix of insecure and narcissistic. It's like the weirdest Correct. mix ever. It's like it doesn't yes. sound right. But when yeah. something like happens, it hurts, even though it's not your fault, I think, because we're sensitive, too. So what do you do when you when you have this? You're on SNL. You know, you're like, you're mm. probably expecting it's going to run for a while. And then it just stops. Do you just say, OK, I got to just start auditioning or where do you focus? Yes, um, that's exactly what happened. Um, I kind of knew, I think all of us knew pretty early on that this was not, we were not going to be on for five years. We pretty much knew. And so I did what every other uh, youngish actor in New York did. Um, I st started auditioning for things. The big thing for me in my career was I looked very young. I was 31 when I did SNL. And I, but I looked much younger than that. And back then, there was nothing for young actors. Uh, there was no, to use a show that I did for nine years, 90210. There was no, no, nothing like that. So I had a lot of trouble getting an agent. I didn't have an agent when I got SNL. And I had trouble getting an agent because there wasn't really anything for me to do. And then I got, very lucky I was um, doing an off-off Broadway show in New York and uh, 
I got a call from uh, the guy, a guy I was in this play with. His wife was a big casting director in L.A. And I got to know her. And she called me and said, uh, I can't fly you out here. But if you can get out here, I'm going to get set up a meeting with you and Carl Reiner. He's doing a movie. You probably won't want the job, but I think you should come talk to him. And Carl Reiner was my idol. I knew every line from the 2,000-year-old man, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks. So I got on a plane. I went out, and I sat in front of Carl Reiner. I, I was speechless. I could barely speak to him. And he was doing a movie called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid with Steve Martin. And he said to me, uh, you're not going to want to do this, but I'll just throw it out there. I need somebody who's going to work with Steve and me for about six weeks, but your face will never be seen on the screen. So I understand if you don't want to do this. I said, what do you, how can I work for six weeks and not be seen? <laughs> he said, well, it's a movie where we're using old actors from, you know, Fred McMurray and James Cagney, but all you'll, we'll see of you because you'll be doing scenes with Steve is the back of your head, your hands, your shoulder, and then we're going to cut to the real old movies. And I said, so wait a minute, you're telling me I can work with you and Steve Martin for six weeks? I don't know if I can say this. Can I use uh, the... You can say whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. I said, I don't give a shit if my face is ever seen on the screen. Are you kidding me? And so I went out to L.A. and had six of the best weeks of my life. I sat with Carl Reiner every day for six weeks, and Steve also. Um, and it was incredible, and that kind of kept me going. And while I was out in L.A., I got a call. By that time, I had somebody who was not, not really my agent but working with me, and he said, I have an audition set up for you for this movie, Eddie and the Cruisers. And we know how that all worked out. Um, but I guess we can talk more about that because you it means a lot to me that you're from Jersey and Eddie meant that movie meant so much to you. Well, you know what it is? It, it's funny because the opening scene, you're at Tony Mart's. And Tony Mart is a place in Summers Point because Ocean City is dry. My older brother three years older, he would get to Tony Martz. I remember I tried to sneak in one time. I made the crappy fake ID with the college, like my college thing. And, and the bouncer just yeah. laughed at me. And then, like, he turned his head and me and my friends ran in. And that was the only time I was in Tony Mart. But we knew when it, it was Eddie and the Cruisers, you know, everyone knew they shot it in the bar. And that was just one of those shows, you know, I told John Caffrey this, like, on the dark side, I, I still, when I hear that song, it takes me back to when I was in college, because I went to college near the Jersey Shore, Stockton State, yep. which is right outside Atlantic City. And, um, yeah, and Eddie and the Cruisers, and, and I heard just great stories about some of the shooting. Like, Joe Pants said, you guys, you know, at the Rickshaw Inn in Cherry Hill, I grew up in Cherry Hill, you know, I, I know. <laughs> and it was just one of those things. But so when you got that movie... Did you have to learn to play guitar, the bass, or, or I mean, how did that work? Was it yeah. an easy audition? What was your this, process? This, this actually is, I think, a really terrific story. Of course, I do. I'm in it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so I auditioned for Marty Davidson, the director, and Arlene, his sister, who was producing the movie. And in the original script, Sal was the lead guitarist. 
and Eddie played the bass. And when I went in to meet with them, and it was a pretty big deal. I mean, <clears throat> I remember going to the audition and Jeff Goldblum was sitting there and there were some pretty big guys that were, you know, auditioning for this. And I went in and Marty asked me if I played the guitar. And I told him that I didn't, but I was the best air guitarist that ever lived. Because that's all I used to do, is play the air guitar. And uh, I said, I could stand in front of you and convince you that I'm playing a guitar without a guitar in my hands. And he went, really? And I went out to my car. I had a cassette of Santana. And I brought it into the office, and I, we put it in, and I played Black Magic Woman on the air guitar in front of Marty. And he loved it. <laughs> and he really could see that musically I could, I could even fake this. They switched it to the bass, and Southside Johnny, as you know, and the Adbury, Asbury Jude, Southside worked with us as a band to get us together as a band. And Southside taught me how to play the bass guitar. And I could play every song from that soundtrack on the bass guitar because I had friends who were musicians. And I didn't ever want one of them to watch that movie and go, you weren't playing. I can tell you weren't playing. So I learned how to play the bass uh, for the movie. And it was fantastic. It was great. What was it like, though? It's a, bu it's a bunch of younger guys. You know, you're shooting. As I said, you're shooting all over the Jersey area. Um, I know I won't say what happened to you guys at the Rickshaw Inn, but uh, but Joey Pants told me, he told my listeners uh, what happened. And it's funny he because did. we used to drive past there when I was a kid going into Philly, yeah. and it was across from the racetrack. And, right. and we, as kids, because it looked cool, we thought it was like this real nice hotel. But later, as I hear later, as my mama say, it was a it was a flea bag place. But I mean, but you guys were just, was it because it was low budget, they just put you up there? I mean, what was it like shooting that movie? We, for me, now, Tom Berenger, for example, who's in the movie, he, he had just finished a movie in Rome, Italy. And he came back, and I remember we all we were all in the car getting ready to drive to Jersey when we started shooting, and we picked Tom up at a hotel in New York. He had just flown in from Rome the day before. For me, this was uh, my actually my second movie. My first movie was two scenes shot in a house in Long Island, which also kind of gave me my start in the business too with Sidney Lumet on a movie called Prince of the City. But to me, I didn't care. I was I was co-starring in a movie where I was playing the bass, where I was getting paid every week. We were getting per diem because we were on location. I didn't care. I didn't know whether it was a low budget, it was this, it was that. I had never been on a big budget movie. I guess I, I could put it that way. Um, shooting the movie was really really interesting because that John Cafferty was still, they were still writing the music when we started. And so we would do all, we did all the acting stuff first as they were finishing the music. And then we would rehearse at night as a band in downstairs, like at the rickshaw Inn, and, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, in this little uh, banquet room, but it was tiny. And we would work on that at night and then during the day do the acting scenes. And 
to this day, it's a miracle that the music stuff came out the way that it did. And it's, I think it's really good, um, all the music stuff. And as you know, it's the biggest cult movie in the world. Um, I'll tell you an interesting story about something that just happened. Um, but the influence of that movie, you know, when the movie came out, it was there and gone in a couple of weeks. And uh, what really made that movie was HBO. It was the beginning of cable. And when that movie went on HBO, and I'm sure John must have said this, within a very short time, the album went triple platinum. Um, and it showed the power of HBO and cable and all those things. Um, to this day, it's 40 years ago, Eddie and the Cruisers, 40 I just did, uh, I'm sure you heard about the floods in eastern Kentucky that we just had a couple months ago here. I wanted to do something. I, I, was, I felt kind of helpless, and I wanted to do something to help. And I went to a, a wonderful gentleman who runs the Kentucky Theater, an iconic movie theater here in Lexington that's been there for 100 years. And I said, I would like to do a special screening of Eddie and the Cruisers with all the money going to charity for Eastern Kentucky. We, it was unbelievable. The donations that came in online, the, we had close to 100 people came on a Saturday night for one screening from a movie that's 40 years old. And it's still, I stood with people before the movie started. Every one of them came up to me and told me stories about why the movie meant so much to them. It chokes me up just thinking about it. And if you if you have a minute, I cut me off if I'm like going too long with this Keep stuff. going. I always tell people, you know what? My thing is that throw the question out. No one listens because of me. They listen because of my guest. <laughs> okay. Um, this is, this is, this says so much about the movie. I, um, I have played in celebrity golf tournaments for, over 30 years and been very blessed. And one of the tournaments that we played in was in North Carolina in Winston-Salem called the Crosby. And it was the biggest celebrity tournament there was. Jack Nicholson played one year. Michael Jordan used to play. And there were 200, 300 people at the first tee when you would get there. It was a really great four or five days. Anyway, it was a three-day tournament, and the first day, I'm walking down the fairway, and people are, they have ropes set up, and people are walking outside the ropes, it's called, and I look over, and I see this guy with a long beard and a camo hat, and he's walking with the crowd, and I just kind of noticed him. The next day, I'm on the golf course, and I look over, and here's this guy walking with my group. And I'm kind of, every hole, I'm kind of looking. The third day, he's still there. So I walked over to him. I'm a sap, by the way. Things choke me up pretty easily. So I walked over to him, and I said, this is crazy, but you can't be following me. I'm, I'm not that good. You can't be following me. He said, I am following you. He said, I saw in the paper, I live about two hours from here, he said. I saw in the paper that you were playing in the tournament. And I had to come and at some point 
say hello to you and thank you. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I served during Desert Storm. And I'm from Jersey. He said, and there were a few of us from Jersey. And every single day I was over there, we were over there. We would go, we had a tent, a video tent, where people could watch movies. Every single day I was over there, me and the guys from Jersey would go in and watch scenes from Eddie and the Cruisers every day. He said, and you got us through that service over there. And um, it's things like that. I heard stories at this screening about a month ago that just blew me away. How about this one, Steve? A good friend of mine uh, who I know loved the movie, the first time I met her, she told me, came to the screening and she had never told me this. She said, I'm going to tell you something now. I've never told you why I love this movie so much. I said, no. She said, my father uh, passed away when he was 41 from a brain tumor about 15 years ago, she said. And when he was getting pretty bad, she said, I had a red convertible and my dad asked me to take him for a ride in the car just to get out. And he brought a cassette of Eddie and the Cruisers. It was his favorite movie. And we would drive around listening to the soundtrack from the movie. And every day as he got worse, I would take him out and drive him around and we would listen to that music. I mean, it's still incredible to me from the rickshaw motel 40 years ago to the impact this movie has had on people it's well, amazing you know and, and as i said i was in college i believe when it came out what year did it come out it came yeah. out in 83 80 yeah. 83 I, that was my freshman year in college and yeah and it was just you know we were going to bars we were hearing those music and then even though we didn't have you know the ivy walls the fatten halls and the, and the, <laughs> and the cruisers balls. for the for the thing we didn't have that but we were related to it because it related to us and being from New Jersey because, you know right. I mean? It was just something that you knew the shore and plus we were close there. Yeah. But now, yeah. so how did you end up, how come you were the only one that ended up, no, two, two or three of you ended up in the sequel. What was that about? Okay. This is, uh, this is an interesting story too. So I was on, I'm glad you mentioned duet. That was a series that lasted for three years on, a new network called the Fox Network. Which, which I love that show. I, 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 I watched that show. show. It was good. We're going to talk about yeah. that more, but tell me about the, okay. how you ended up It was a great show. Anyway, so I am now uh, on this show, on this series on Fox, and I'm having a great time. This is the first real money, I mean real money, that I made. I had a job every day on a series that we knew at least it was going one season, and I get a call from my agent, and he says, I just got a call from the Scotty Brothers, who I knew, they're record producers, from the Scotty Brothers. They're about to do Eddie and the Cruisers Part 2. And they don't want, Michael Pere was obviously in it, but they don't want anybody else from the original movie except you. 
and it's shooting in Montreal and it'll be a week's probably maybe three days, four days in Montreal and then one day in Jersey on the beach in Jersey again. And I said, let me talk to the producers. I spoke to my wonderful producers with duet. I explained, uh, could I take a week off from the show? And they said, yeah, of course it'll be good for you. And we'll write something in the script. We'll say you're stuck in traffic somewhere or something. And then I read the script and I called my agent and I said, I'm not doing this. I said, this is bad. This is bad. And he said, well, how about this? How about if we ask for a ridiculous amount of money? And if they say, okay, you'll do it. If they say no, you don't lose anything. I said, okay. So he called me the next day and he said, okay, you're going to Montreal. <laughs> what? I ended up going to Montreal. I had a great time being with Michael again. Our stuff, I think, is great in that movie. And it should be because we had the whole first one as history um but i thought the movie was really bad um the songs by john are great and the band from part two i love those songs too but it was and it's a shame because talk about a built-in audience for a movie people were dying to see eddie and the cruisers part two but i don't think the way that it turned out was the the best way it could have now, in between that time, you also did St. Ella's Fire, which is, once again, yes. is an 80s movie. It's funny, because when I interviewed John Parr, he had told me that, that that theme was for the Special Olympics. It wasn't for the movie. It was about a guy in a wheelchair. That's why they couldn't get nominated for an Oscar. But once yep. again, you know, college, my age, you know, the same thing. How did that yep. come about? And, and, and what was it like working with the Brat Pack? Because you were older than them, and they were probably like, anyone's going to be cocky because they're... They're big stars. But what was that like? I mean, was that, did, was that an well, offer or did you audition for that or what? I, I didn't audition and I'll tell you why. Um, I was doing, a, when they were casting that movie and Joel Schumacher was the director of that movie, a fantastic, very big director in Hollywood at the time. I was doing a play in Los Angeles with Leslie Ann Warren, uh, who was incredible and i was playing it was a, a play about two people who worked in the post office and i was gay my character was gay and joe joel came and saw me in that play he was a friend of leslie ann's and he came and he saw me in the play and a little bit later when they were casting the part of ron delisandro in saint elmo's fire who is a gay character. Joel, my agent, said, Joel wants to talk to you. So I went in to meet with him, and based on my performance that he had seen in the play, he offered me the part, uh, which was, it was incredible. I mean, and, and out of that experience with the Brat Pack, I became very friendly with Andrew McCarthy, who to this day remains one of my closest friends, even though we don't see each other very much anymore. Um, and it was quite an experience working with all of them. You know, uh, Demi was, she was known for 
being on General Hospital at the time. Uh, and Judd and Emilio, I had a great time with them. They were all terrific, all of them. And Andrew and I ended up being friends to up till this very day. But that was a really interesting experience as well. So how did Duet come about? Because as you said, it was the early days of Fox, and it was, uh, and as I said, I don't know, it just, it was, it was a cool show, and you were a cool character, you know, like the writer. But was that, did they, was that a sought-after role? I mean, how did you, did you know it was going to be one season to start, like you said earlier, you knew that if you signed it would be a season, or well, did we, you just go to pilot? We didn't really know. Um, what was going to happen because it literally was the the opening night of the Fox network we were on. There was a show called Mr. President with George C. Scott and uh, it, the adventures of Beans Baxter was a show. And um, I went in, I got a call to go in and audition for this part. Uh, and I heard, had heard other friends of mine talking about this audition that was coming up. And so I just went in, I read for Ruth Bennett and Susan Seeger, who were the two writer producers of the show. And I, I hit it off with them immediately. And I ended up going back three times, maybe four times, um, to, as they whittled it down. And then, uh, God, I haven't thought about this in a long time. Um, they had they were looking they cast me first and then had to find uh, the part that was played by Mary Page Keller, which this was a show about a couple's relationship from the time they meet, the day they meet, and in real time every week going through a relationship. And uh, I remember they had they were having a lot of trouble finding uh, a Mary for the, for this show. And then she was on a soap opera in New York. They brought her out and we hit it off and she is the best. And we just went. I mean, we didn't really know what was going to happen. You sign contracts, of course, but you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, and it was three of the best years of my life. Um, it was incredible. Now what, I mean, explain, and I, I, I've talked a lot of actors about this, how great it is, as you said, you're going to work every day. And after like after the first season, you're not sure what's going to happen. And in the middle of the second season, you really get to know the crew. You know, it's becoming like a family. And you know, as yep. you said, you know you're going to get that series regular check, even though it's Fox, not yep. NBC, but you're still getting no, paid. No, it, well. it was a good check, so believe you, me. You're <laughs> getting that, you're getting that, you're getting that. And then after the second season, it's a popular show. Now, are you getting recognized on the streets now? Are people, I mean, yeah. like, I mean, I'm sure the cult people knew you from Eddie and the Cruisers and stuff like that and, and St. Elmo's. Yeah. But what was that like for you when people started recognizing you? Because one thing, you were a little it bit was, older when it happened, so that's good. You could yeah. be more grounded. But what was yeah. it like? It was, uh, it was really interesting. I'll tell you that I'll tell you the first time people would recognize me, uh, but it wasn't like I was Brad Pitt or somebody. I mean, people would different people every once in a while would recognize me. Oh, you're that guy on that show. I love that show. Those kind of things. Here's where it really hit me. I used to try to go to the comedy store in Hollywood. And there was always a line to get in there. And I would wait in line. 
to be let in there because there was always, I'm sure you know this, there was always some big shot Hollywood guy doing stand-up in there. And so I would wait to get in. And after Duet had been on a few times, I remember, go, again, I haven't thought of this in years. I remember going one night and there were maybe 15 people waiting to get in. And I walked to the back of the line. And one of the two guys that were at the door recognized me and walked up to me and said, why are you in line here? I said, what do you mean? He said, you don't have to wait in line here. You're on a series. You don't ever have to wait on line here. And that show was great. Come with me. And he took me in and they gave me a seat down in the front. And they, and I remember thinking to myself, boy, times have really changed for me here. I mean, it's a simple thing, but it meant a lot to me. You know, it meant a lot to me. And here's, here's something else. I, anything that I've ever done in show business where people recognize me, and we'll talk about 90210, but you talk about getting recognized. I was on that show for nine years, and it was the most popular show in the world. Um, I got recognized in Europe, all over the place, all the time. But the very first job I did, I said, was with Sidney Lament on Prince of the City. And I went to that set the first day. I was paralyzed with fear. I had never been on a movie set. And it was with Sidney Lament, one of the great directors. And Jerry Orbach was there that day. A, an actor that we idolized and I talked I went through this thing with Jerry and I said to Sydney and I were walking to go to shoot my scene and I said to Sydney Jerry Orbach is like the nicest guy in the world and Sydney Lamet said something to me and I never forgot it he said let me tell you something you're gonna have a great career he said don't ever forget this the bigger you get the nicer you are to people you don't ever have a reason when you're working to be an asshole, he said. The time for you to not be a good guy is when you're sleeping on somebody's couch and you have no money and you can't get an acting job. When you're working, you be the nicest guy in the world. That's who Jerry Orbach is. And I never forgot that. And I came from a family of my mother and father were that way, too. So... Being recognized to get all the way back, I know I'm just kind of blabbing here, but being recognized and things like that, I've always been incredibly grateful for that. Incredibly. I've never taken that for granted, ever, even to this day. I'm on the radio now, and when somebody in Kroger, my grocery store, hears me talk to the cashier and says, oh, you're the guy on uh, ESPN radio, I recognize your voice. I'm very grateful that he recognizes my voice because it means he's listening. That that actually it's, it doesn't happen to me much, but I I was I had interviewed the lead singer from OMD Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, and they had posted yep. they had posted the interview on their page. So I got get on the guest list to see him in Philly, and I'm walking. Some guy's looking at me, and I'm like, hey, he's like, he recognized me from the picture. He goes, oh, that was a great interview, and I was like, wow. oh my god. And then as the show is ending, I went to talk to the lead singer because Jonathan, I had not met him. We had just done what we're doing. Yeah. And another guy comes up to me. He goes, so what would you think of the show? And I'm like, oh, it's really good. And he's like, 
really good interview. And I was like, well, I think because I have glasses and I always wear a hat that some yeah. reference. But it's one of those things you sit there and, and you go, you know, you're, you are, you're very humbled. You're like, wow, like, you know, that made a difference. And and when it's bigger, like with yeah. the TV show, so many people recognize you. So, so okay, so you got recognized from Duet. So what happened with Duet? What what, what happened after the third season? Did they just... I mean, because it was it was a popular show. It was a good show. Yeah, I don't I don't really know exactly what happened. I mean, I did. I think we did fifty seven episodes of that show, which is a you know most people don't get to do fifty seven episodes of a series. Uh, but after the third year, they decided to change it. They turned it into a show called Open House, about a real estate office, and they kept Mary. And Allison LaPlaca, who was on duet also, and they had a they had a comedian was also on that show. Somebody that we know now, her name is Ellen DeGeneres, was also on that show when they changed it to Open House. And so that we were talking about this before. I was hurt by that. Uh, that they decide, and they told me it had nothing to do with me, and they thought our relationship had run its course, Mary and I. It was a show about our relationship. We had gotten married, and then we got divorced, and so they changed it. And that I think it ran one more year, and that was it. But I mean, but that hurt when it first happened. But I pretty quickly got over that also because i i was at a different level after i had been on that show so you know after you leave the show you start you know you start doing you're doing guest roles and and in the beginning and it must be hard yeah. going from being the regular to doing guest roles because especially what you said earlier about always be nice and i've talked to many actors who say they go on a set and someone's just a real prick and it might yep. be a guy number three on the call sheet that's never had a series, but you get yep. that. What was that like for you adjusting to being, you know, back, you're being a character actor now. You were going from a TV yeah. lead to that. Was it hard for you or were you just glad no, you were working? I was just glad I was working. Always. I always felt like that um, because I had so many friends that were incredible actors that couldn't work and wouldn't, you know, they couldn't get a job. So, again, that whole thing, anytime I, I was able to work and make money doing what was my career, I was always happy. And I, the good thing is, I should say, when I would guest star on the show, I would be the guest star. It wasn't like I was doing two lines in a scene. Like when I first started out, maybe I was, you know, an extra and they gave me a line. This was, you know, I always felt like, and I met some, I worked with incredible people all along the way i did an episode of taxi in 1981 and got to sit and watch for a week judd hirsch and christopher lloyd and danny devito and i had the it was like the greatest week in the world i always i loved the people that i worked with i never had a bad experience except and it wasn't even a real bad experience it's just an actor that most people love that was not a very nice man. And that was Andy Griffith. I mean, other than that, he was just, he, he, he was not a nice man. I'll just leave it at that. 
every almost I can't think of another time where he, there wasn't at least one person that I loved meeting and be and I become friends with everybody. I'm one of those people. So I always thought how great that this person's in my life, whatever show I was on. So you mentioned Beverly Hills nine oh two one oh. Now that was supposed yeah. to be just one or two episodes. How'd that all come about? That's that is exactly right. So I get a call uh, from my agent and the show had been on for, it was in the first season towards the end of the first season. And the first season, it was the lowest rated show on television. A lot of people didn't have Fox at that point. It was 1990, I think 1991. And it was, nobody was watching. It was this bunch of kids in high school and nobody was watching. I had never seen an episode of the show. And my agent called and said they would like the they would like you to come in and talk to them about uh, doing one episode as the father of one of the kids on the show. And I said, I'm not doing that show. I mean, that show is supposed to be really bad. And my agent brilliantly said, you've never played a father before. This would be good for you. Just do one episode and you'll have it'll be good for you. I said, whose father am I supposed to be? He said, this kid named Brian Austin Green. If you went back five years before that, I did a show called um, Circus of the Stars that used to be on a Thanksgiving every year. And it was a pretty big deal. And there was a 13-year-old kid on the, the episode I did whose name was Brian Austin Green. He was on Dallas at the time. Or I think it was Dallas. Anyway, I spent a few weeks during rehearsals for that show, and I loved that kid. I loved him. I got friendly with his mom. It was great. So I said, okay, I'll go see him. So I went in. I spoke to them. I got hired for one episode of that show and it turned into nine years on that show and that show of everything i think it was the least creative thing that i ever did as an actor because i loved brian and he was my son and so i always felt you know like this was very natural to me kind of but you want to talk about getting recognized i mean it, it's a joke to this day even and i to be honest, I don't look like I did on that show. The last episode was 1999 of that show. So would they just keep calling you back? Like, would they say, oh, yeah, we need you? I mean, were you, did you have to keep an open schedule or how did that work? No, I didn't keep an open schedule, but they were very accommodating uh, with me. They would, they before they would put me in an episode, and I did... In the nine years, I think I did close to 40 or 50 episodes, I think. Uh, they would always call a couple weeks ahead, and my agent would say, okay, you're booked for these two days next week or the week after. And it always worked out, always. I don't know how they did it, but it always worked out. I, I didn't have a contract that said, for this season, you'll do three episodes or whatever, but as I said, it turned into nine years of the show. So after that, you did One Tree Hill, and then you were in a movie in 2009. What made you stop acting? Was it just something you were over it, or you just wanted to change gears? Because I know a lot of people... Um, 
I'll, t I'll tell you what happened. Um, in 1999, I had had it. I lived in L.A. for 20 years almost, and I was really sick of it. Um, I was sick of the fact that everything about life was about the business. I got to the point where, you know, if somebody said, how are you doing? And you said, I'm doing great. The first thing they said was, really, what are you working on? Um, also, the other thing, and this was the, the real deciding factor for me, was my agent called me one day and said, just so you know what's going on out there. I just submitted you for uh, the lead in a sitcom for NBC. And the casting director, who is probably 25 years old, said, you know, I really like him. I, I've seen him on 90210, but can he do comedy? It was a comedy, a sitcom. And my agent said to the casting director, have you, have you looked at his resume? Saturday Night Live, three years of his own on a sitcom. He's guest starred on every sitcom there is. And when my agent told me that, I went, I'm getting out of here. I'm not going to be trying to get a job you know, when I'm 60 or 65 or I've done enough where I shouldn't have to do this. And I had uh, become friendly with Coach K at Duke University over the years. I went to uh, a golf tournament there and I had dinner with Coach K and he asked me how I was doing. I said, I want to leave L.A. He said, come work with me. So for 10 years, I did radio for the Duke basketball team, which was incredible and then playing in another golf tournament i got offered this job at espn radio here and my wife was from here we had two young boys and i decided to take the job here and now you're all caught up <laughs> now, now i, I want to ask you though because i moved i was in la for 15 17 years and then my my wife she moved out there with me for three years and I came back five years ago and I've yeah. talked to people who've left LA and I don't know if this happened to you too, but you really, when you move back or you move somewhere else, it takes you like a month to decompress, like not worrying about traffic, not sitting right. there going, like, as you said, what are people going to ask what you're up to? How long did it take you to get used to? It? Cause you have been acting for so long. That was your yeah. life. I, um, I was it happened pretty quickly because I was so excited about being at Duke. That was the other love of my life was sports. And I had gotten friendly with Coach K years before that. I was I loved Duke basketball. I loved him. And there I was, you know, working with that team every day. So I was very excited to be there. Um, and like you say, it was great. I lived a mile and a half from where I worked, there was no traffic instead of getting on, on the five every morning like I had been doing in L.A. Um, it didn't take me that long to decompress, um, actually, for when I was there. It was great. I was very happy to be out of L.A., very happy. Now, on your radio show now, what's your what's your focus? Like, I I, I'm, I listen to I don't listen to Philly sports talk anymore yeah. because the fans are friend friend man got max I said Philly fans are garbage. You know, they're always bitching about something. You know, Jalen Hurts can miss one pass and they go, Oh, he sucks. 
And I'm like, what right. do you mean? Yeah. You know? And the the sports cast, the guys here, they're always playing good cop, bad cop, and just right. You know, and and they're yeah, just no. it's that thing. But what is it like for you being in Lexington? What's the big? What's your big focus? Basketball. University of Kentucky basketball. Now, didn't they didn't they boo the coach? Uh, actually, last night at halftime, there was booing going on. It's not this season has been very bad, and people are very these people. I always say this: the fans, Kentucky basketball fans, are not fans. This is like the Taliban here. This is a religious fervor that is unmatched almost anywhere i know there's alabama football fans are like this their big blue nation is is its own entity and they are very frustrated and very unhappy with what's going on right now so you know as somebody that has a show every day on the radio um it gives us something to talk about because uh it's pretty astounding what's going on here with the fans yeah i have one final question um, okay. Do you do you ever miss the acting? I mean, not not the bullshit of the business, but like, would you ever do a play in Kentucky just to get your uh, chops back, or do you miss that? Yes, it's a great question, and the answer is absolutely. But I'll tell you what I miss more than anything, more even than the work. I miss being on a set. I miss the crew. Those were my guys and women. I loved the crew. I, I would hang out with them a lot more most of the time than actors. Um, I love that familial feeling on a set and how creative and wonderful people are at their jobs. And that is something that you, it's really hard to find that when you've had it a lot in your life. And I think that's the thing I miss the most. And at some point, um, I almost did a play when I moved here, but my boys were very young and I knew I would be away at rehearsals and I decided not to. At some point, I'm going to I will do a play or who knows, maybe I'll go visit some friends of mine in L.A. and there'll be somebody as old as I am that's still in the business <laughs> that'll go. You want to be a guest star next week? You know, one of those things I would love to. But I miss mostly being on the set. That's what I miss. That's great, man. I want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, I know you're on Twitter. Uh, what what's your what's your Twitter? My Twitter uh, handle, as the kids say, is at real r e a l lauro l a u r o and the number five. So people go follow him. I found out today he would not eat squirrel at a Michelin restaurant. I, I found exactly that out. Right. I found that out. But like 40 people on Facebook said they would, which surprised me. Oh, please. They're lying. <laughs> so people, and, and go, if you haven't seen Eddie and the Cruisers, go watch it. It's just go watch it. You know, I know it's hard to find. It's, you can't find it streaming. Go buy it. It's right. worth it. So people, go check uh, check out Matthew. Go to his IMDb. Look at everything he's done. Check it out. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 940 episodes. Email me uh-huh. Cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.